This podcast is presented by Solving Kids Cancer, dedicated to improving survival through novel clinical studies. To learn more about funding opportunities, visit our website at solvingkidscancer.org and click Apply for Grant. This week in Pediatric Oncology, the podcast about new advances for childhood cancer. Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode number 49, recorded on October 3rd, 2014. I'm your host, Tim Kripe, here with Eli Shaw, my co-host, both of us here from Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio, affiliated with The Ohio State University. Today on Twipple, we have some interesting topics to talk about, I think mainly the adolescent young adult population and drug development and how those issues intersect. And to lead us in these discussions is our guest, Dr. Robin Norris. Welcome, Robin. Thanks. Nice to be here. Well, Robin is an assistant professor at Case Western University, Rainbow Babies, and Children's Hospital in Cleveland, Ohio, and was here today giving us a seminar. And we appreciate your your being here and willing to chit-chat with us. We kind of wanted to start off, as we usually do, just finding out a little bit more about you and your background and what makes you tick, uh, particularly in terms of how you landed where you are in your professional career. So can you just tell us briefly where you grew up and where you went to school and got your training? Sure. So I grew up in Princeton, New Jersey, and um, since I've been in college, I've flipped back and forth on various coasts and then landed in the middle. Um, So I grew up in Princeton, like I said, and then I went to college out at Stanford and then came back to Philly to go to medical school at the University of Pennsylvania and then decided to go back out to San Francisco to do my residency at UCSF and then took the plane back again to Philadelphia where I did my fellowship at CHOP and then continued there as an attending. So you're a coast jumper. I am a coast (laughs) jumper. What made you want to go into pediatrics or into pediatric oncology in particular? So I'm either unoriginal or inspired early in life. So my father actually um, is a pediatric oncologist. And so I think I was exposed pretty early on to the incredible things that he did and, and that he really got to work as a team and really made an impact in patients. And then as I... Where was he in practice? So he was um, he was in a lot of places. So he trained at Mayo and then was at CHOP for a little bit and then actually was at the clinic and then decided to leave um, clinical medicine and, and pursued other interests. So I saw that early and, and sort of thought that's where I wanted to go. And then at Stanford did actually a lot of infectious disease. And it was at the time where we were really starting to learn how to treat AIDS and sort of was able to put some of that together and, and realize a lot of our strategies are actually very similar to that of how we've reached our successes in HIV and and sort of thought that was where I wanted to go and, and became interested in developmental therapeutics. So the other part of my lack of originality is that my mother is also um, an academic physician and um, left academia to go um, develop drugs for rheumatoid arthritis. And so I think maybe exposing to some of that, and it was really just what I thought was very interesting and and whether I was inspired or exposed early or, you know, genetics of what we're interested in and how our brain works played a factor as well. That's one of the interests I had. And so as I continued in my career, both in my medical school training as well as at, in San Francisco, um, you know, I, there was just a lot of affirmation that this is what I wanted to do. And, and I was lucky enough at UCSF to work with a great attending, Brian Weiss, who is now still a very good friend. And he really let me take part in the care of the patients, um, I think in a way that we don't always let our residents participate. And we unfortunately took care of a lot of kids who were dealing with end-of-life issues. And he let me be part of that meeting, which I think was really important for me. And 
it, it helped me realize the challenges of the clinical medicine, but also how much more work was to be done. And so I knew that that's what I wanted to do, was interested in drug development at that time. So I decided actually after my residency to stay in San Francisco a year um, and actually get a master's in public health at Berkeley. And the program was designed for MDs, and what it really let me do is to learn a lot of statistics and epidemiology. It also let me stay in the area so my husband could graduate medical school and we could go move together to Philadelphia. Um, but it really helped me get some of the the background I needed to be able to do the translational medicine I knew I wanted to do. And then I had the opportunity and chose to go to CHOP because of the opportunity to work with Peter Adamson, who was great. And even in the initial conversations I had with him at five in the morning, my time to be able to mm -hmm. talk to him, realized that I thought he would be a great mentor. And so had a wonderful training experience at CHOP and really started to learn some of the clinical models that would be needed to understand and to help prioritize what to bring forward for our pediatric cancer and what to choose from the adult population, but also to learn some of the clinical pharmacology that's also key to how we're interpreting the, some of those results. And had an opportunity through um, CTSA K-12 to actually get another master's in translational research, um, which was a lot of the regulatory piece of drug development, as well as, um, for me, I was able to expand my interest in pharmacology and get more training. So there's a lot of lessons there for junior faculty <laughs> in terms of finding good mentors, uh, getting the right kind of training, formal mm -hmm. training, uh, going to where the opportunities are, and it sounds like for you also uh, continuing in the family business. Of yes. <laughs> That's great. Um, I, were there any patients along the way that inspired you or any teachers besides those mentors you mentioned? Yeah, I, I think in a lot of ways, my patients were my teachers. Um, you know, those patients that I took care of for the first time that were really sort of my patients at UCSF as a resident, I think really showed me that I wanted to do this for a profession and help them and help their families. Um, and then as a fellow, I just work with some incredible patients and their families and unfortunately had a lot of patients do poorly um, due to just the types of diseases they had. And I, I think realizing that I was human and that those experiences really affected me, but they also really challenged me to do more. And I realized that I think to the surprise of some of my friends um, along the way that I ended up doing a lot more research than what they would have all thought when I was in medical school. Um, I have a good friend who's a radiation oncologist. And she's like, I just never thought you'd really be a 75-25 person. And for me, it really helped because I do get involved with my patients. I like to be involved with my patients. And I think I also have to acknowledge that as a human, I, I can't do that 100% of the time. It would be too much. But I think also to use the skills that I've learned I think will help me have a greater impact for myself personally than if I was a clinician. And to, so to combine those two things together, I think helps prevent, helps me personally and mentally, but, but I think also really helps to pique my interest in what I'm doing and, and do lots of different things along the way. That's a, that's a great point because, you know, there are, uh, amongst us pediatric uh, hematologists, <laughs> oncologists, a lot of varieties of different career pathways mm -hmm. and, and how we spend our time during the day and how much, what percent time we're you know, devoted to patient care versus research. And being a lab-based person, I've always said, well, you know, I get inspired by the kids, but I couldn't do it full time. Mm -hmm. and very much um, in all of the folks who can. Yes. Because yes. it is quite draining. And, and it sounds like to some degree you've had the same, same experience and mm -hmm. everyone really has to find their own right mix and right, fit for right. their career. So it sounds like you found a nice balance between those those things. So So you you've 
had quite a lot of different types of experiences <laughs> up to this point. They've kind of coned into a wonderful feel that um, is a um, it's a you know for for better for worse popular topic right mm -hmm. now, but it's a it's a necessary thing. So particularly looking at uh, how we're treating our adolescents and young adults and how we should be bringing uh, a mix of, of treatment options there. So can you tell us a little bit how, how you got to that field and then and where you're taking that now? Sure. So I, I think that how I got to that field is, is largely influenced to some of my more recent experiences since I've gotten to Rainbow. We have been very lucky at Rainbow that there have been a lot of philanthropy um, investments in the AYA program and that those investments are not just restricted to the clinical arena but to the research arena and I think have helped spark a lot of conversations about how can we work better together with medical oncologists and adult hospitals in general to do better care. And I think there was one patient... Can you set up the problem for our audience? They may not be aware about the difference between outcomes and that sort of thing with... Sure, sure. Adults. So we know that um, our outcomes in our AYA patients are, are worse than than in our young or younger patients with pediatric cancers. And, and some of that reason... It's probably, those reasons are probably multifactorial. So there are probably some innate biologic differences in their tumors that make them more resistant to chemo or harder to treat. Um, there are also... What age group would you say is the AYA? So for AYA, it's, it's an interesting question. It's defined differently in every article you read. Um, I think a somewhat general consensus, though I'm sure there are others who are listening to this might disagree, it's probably 15 to 39. I think some people would drop that down to sort of a 15 to 29-year-old's um, range. Sometimes people mess a little bit with the lower age limit, but when I think of it, I think of sort of 15 to 29 okay. or 15 to 39. Uh, so some of the innate biologic differences, I think some of the barriers in terms of treatment locations. So where do you treat a 25-year-old with pediatric cancer? We know that outcomes are better, or we've seen in some of our pediatric cancers that if a 25-year-old is treated on a pediatric trial, their outcome is better than if they're treated at an adult institution and not on trial. Um, that may not be true across the board, but there's definitely an impact of knowing how to use the therapies that we give and the intensity that we give. The AYA population is also unique in terms of their psychosocial issues that they're facing, you know, just development in general, gaining independence, um, sometimes riskier behaviors, all of those things that we all went through as we were going older, they're trying to go through that and have cancer and try to live a normal life and feel very connected or consequently isolated from their social network, I think is a huge problem for our AYA patients, as well as their tolerance to chemotherapy, which I think we're starting to really look at. And, and there probably is a differential to tolerance to chemo when you compare them to the, our younger patients or patients who are less than 15. Then you get into sort of the structural, like, where do you take care of these patients? Um, some of our freestanding children's hospitals, which are incredible institutions, it gets tricky. So we want to take care of these 25-year-olds, and we often want to admit them. But what happens when they get renal insufficiency? What happens when they need a pulmonologist? What happens when they need an ID doctor? Where are those specialists? And as oncologists, we feel relatively comfortable to expand our age up to 29, 39, I think, makes all of us cringe a little, but maybe is the right thing to do. But what do we do when those patients need a specialist? And what do we do, and particularly when the patients get sick? Because our patients do get sick, and we all have to assume that that is a probable 
outcome that they may have. And I think it that is a challenging aspect as we're getting more into this AYA population. What ICU do you send them to? Who can take care of them the best? Um, I mentioned this in the talk, but I have take care of a 32-year-old with Down syndrome and ALL. And, and there are a lot of discussions about location. I also um, have taken care of um, 20-year-olds with relapsed cancer who, for psych psychological reasons, cannot be treated for another year in the same institution they were treated 10 years ago. They just can't handle that. And I think those patients have really given us the opportunity to, to learn to work better with our adult colleagues within the cancer centers. Often the pediatric and adult groups are with, held within the same cancer center. So there are reasons to help support the collaboration. And I think we can really do better by all of them, uh, by our patients, um, to figure out the best thing and that there's no one pattern that's right for each patient, but to be able to build in some flexibility. And probably each institution has a different culture and the, oh, the, the right fit or the right the solution for that is going to be different from institution yes. to institution. I know we frequently take care of patients in the 30s, and, mm -hmm. and uh, but we have adult med peds hospitalists who come and consult on every patient over a certain age, and um, the groups have gotten comfortable to that to some degree. Right. Uh, but mm -hmm. uh, every institution's different, and yeah. a lot of pediatric centers cut off strictly at 21 or yes. even 18, and and so that may become even more of a, yeah. a challenge. Yeah. We've done the converse. We've, we've done that model. We don't have somebody to consult on. We have the adult specialists come and consult on our patients. We're lucky because we're sort of housed within the same enclosure. We're separate buildings, but you can right. get there easily, even in the Cleveland winters. Um, but the patient who I mentioned had a really hard time with coming back to the pediatric floor. She actually was admitted for all of her chemotherapy on the adult side, and I had privileges to be the consult. So their oncolo med oncology team is often run by hospitalists or nurse practitioners. And so we have done pediatric consults for our patients um, as well, which is a model that worked very well for yeah. us. And and we have, you know, some of that converse challenge ourselves. We're we're lucky at our institution to have some, some flexibility mm -hmm. on that upper age limit, but then the question becomes, well, how much as far as side effect profiles mm -hmm. do the patients tolerate? And uh, as an adult male, we are wimpy. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it becomes a little bit of a question of what's the, the right approach to take with, with a lot of those patients. So it gets to be muddied very quickly. Well, I thought it was interesting in your talk how, how you described the fact that, you know, adolescents and young adults tend to tolerate drugs less well, more like the adult mm -hmm. adults, if I got that correct. Yeah. And, and yet we know they do better when we tr push yes. things a little bit harder. So that's, those are two kind of opposing the, findings. Um, um, they are, but I think <laughs> they are both true. And, and I think the hard part is going to be able to negotiate what path to take as you navigate those two aspects. Well, the other interesting thing you mentioned, uh, I think, was in the adolescents, only about 15% are on trials, but in the young adults in the 20s, only 2% get enrolled on trials. And yeah. Can you talk a little bit more about that? It seems as if one of the greatest factors that is impacting that is the location of treatment. Um, we know that pediatric, or studies have shown that pediatric oncologists are about seven times more likely to enroll an AYA patient on a clinical trial as opposed to the adult um our adult med medical oncologist counterparts. Is that because most of their studies are geared toward adult-type diseases and they don't, those patients don't qualify with a pediatric-type disease? I, I'm not sure. I think that a lot of it, I mean, there are a lot of 
ALL, patients with ALL who fall within that range, and I think they just have different studies, and they may not be open in clinical trials, so they just sort of give them what they know works and what's worked in the past, and they go down that pathway. I think some of that is starting to change, especially in the ALL group, because the data there that our patients, you know, those patients really do do better on pediatric protocols, and the adults are starting to open these pediatric protocols. One of the things that I think will also help impact that trial enrollment is now through the NCTN and being able to participate in, in clinical trials of the different NCI cooperative groups. Um, hopefully will make an impact or at least start the conversation more so you realize that there may be this trial open, especially if you have a central IRB at your institution, and so you know what's available. Maybe that will start people to pick up the phone even more and, and figure out the best way to treat them. So, go ahead. I, I wanted to ask one question about um, with that age group, the because you mentioned that uh, insurance is an impact on where these patients are treated, and most of these studies have, have been historical. Certainly, nothing has been in the age of, of Obamacare. Um, how much has access to medical care impacted not only time to diagnosis mm -hmm. as well as um, where they're offered uh, for treatments? Right. So it. it I can't speak with the whole wealth of knowledge. There are probably others who could speak much better to that than I can. From my reading, it looks as if sort of the uninsured, there is sort of a bias to uninsured maybe going less to the pediatric institution, more to the com community um, facilities. I, I don't know if that's exactly true. I think there are going to be changes um, with Obamacare that hopefully will impact favorably yeah. um, on the access to health care for these patients. I think it will. Yeah. But yeah, I mean that—that's definitely always the the thing that we see. I mean, whenever uh, I was talking with with someone in the adult field uh, earlier of how um, you know your patients, if they don't return to clinic, there's not much you can do. Our patients, we can call CPS. We right. can always get the patients in. <laughs> and in that that early adulthood phase, when they're kind of out on their own, parents aren't able to check in on them on a regular basis, and they may not be in a dedicated relationship where their partner is saying, mm -hmm. you know, you've been complaining about your knee for a couple of months now. Maybe you should have something checked out. It's, it's, I think there's a, um, some of those aspects, which hopefully just by having a, a medical home will, yeah. will help to, to streamline that too. I think the other thing that that speaks to, you know, we are used to, where are your patients? There has to be accountability. We're, we're used to going through that list at the end of the day yeah. and looking who's not there and calling. I, I don't know, because I'm not a medical oncologist, but I would guess that if two patients in their practice day of seeing 60 patients don't show up, they may not all get phone calls, um, be because there is more autonomy when you're an adult. And I think maybe our AYA patients also do better because we treat them a little bit in that sort of pediatric model where, where were you? Are you taking your 6MP? Are you sure you're taking your 6MP? What else are you doing? You know. Yeah, there are some benefits to yeah, that. Yeah, 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 yeah absolutely. Uh, the other, one of the other things I thought fascinating I didn't know that you talked about today was differences in gender uh, outcomes. Can you talk about that a bit? Yeah, I found that really interesting. And again, I sort of feel like I need to dedicate a few hours to sort of sifting through that article and, and looking at it. But it was very interesting. In the AYA population, there was an article from Australia, is the one that you're mentioning, where they talk about... Um, differences in gender in terms of both toxicity and tolerability. And, and one of the reasons I brought it up when I did in the talk is sort of getting at this difference that happens in adolescence in terms of your body composition and how does that affect your PK profile. And I, I thought it was an interesting article that really looked and found that the um, female adolescent patients had more toxicity 
but also better survival and better outcomes um, than the um, their male counterparts. And and is that because toxicity is often a PD marker? Um, no pain, no gain. Exactly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we are a little tough, <laughs> 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 um, but I think it also brings into question: Are we underdosing our adults or our males? Could we be giving them more, and should we be giving them more? And is that what we need? It's not, you know. We often talk about giving more, but I think we have to take a step back and say, are, are we giving the appropriate amount? You know, it's always interesting in pediatric cancer, right? We give poison and we give a lot of our poison without having levels. You know, we have levels for genomycin. We have levels for vancomycin. There are only a few drugs that we actually dose based on the PK parameters in real time. And I think that's really the question. It's, are we giving the appropriate amount for that patient and how they're absorbing the drug, how they're, you know. It's really the first degree of personalized medicine. Mm -hmm. Right, should uh, be. (laughs) And maybe split by gender, but then split by, you know, monitoring each person. Obviously, they're everyone's different. There are many of us who wish we could do that in more yes, real time. Indeed. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's a question for us in neuroblastoma where yes. we know when the kids are getting their Accutane because they start peeling. If they're not peeling, they're not getting their Accutane. Right. You know, and that's what we've used in, in maintenance for ALL forever, right? Yeah. We we counts. we don't look at levels, but we look at counts mm-hmm. and, and we will go up. You know, I have a patient right now who's on 175% dosing. For, for both. Like, that's what he's needing. He's getting it. We've checked all of that. He just needs more. And if we weren't able to follow that, think about how much we would be underdosing this young man and, and not giving him what he needs. Yeah, it's a great point. The other point I thought it was interesting at your talk that Peter Houghton brought up was that although children have tolerated cytotoxics more than adults, it seems in this new era of, mm-hmm. you know, inhibitors, pathway inhibitors and so forth, maybe the adults are tolerating those better than children. Are there real strong data for that? And so there, there, ha- there aren't yet very strong data for that. I, I think it's something that we soon or now could start to reanalyze. So I, I haven't seen any recent data on that, but it's something that I'm interested in looking into. There was a study in 2006 that started to look at sort of the relative MTDs of certain biologics in the adult and pediatric population. And the, that ratio was very varied. So it went from 0.3 to 1.6. And so there isn't sort of a set pattern in the same way there seems to be with our cytotoxics, and it's probably much more based on what's the toxicity profile of the agent. So for our uh, listeners that aren't aware, MTD being maximum tolerated dose, so the amount you can give a person without having undue, untoward side effects. Yes. And the other thing I hadn't realized as well, well there are all these things I learned today in your talk, <laughs> um, was that our parameters for defining what a dose-limiting toxicity is is really different in pediatrics than adults. And so although I've often thought, yeah, we tol- kids tolerate a lot better, we just may be letting them fall to greater depths. Right, mm-hmm. it, it, especially so with, that's true. So with the non-heme toxicities, a lot of that is probably constant across pediatric and adult. But with the hematologic toxicities, in general, our pediatric trials really allow for a greater degree of myelosuppression as well as longer durations of myelosuppression. And I think I've started to see that being uh, sitting on the adult phase one trial uh, group over at Case, when they talk about myelosuppression, there's stuff that I'm like, that's so, like, thing, yeah. whatever, and, and they will talk about platelet counts where they feel the need, like, I hope this guy's okay, and, and are appropriately taking good care of them on sort of relative numbers that I see every day in our practice. And so I think there is a different degree, and that's probably driving some of the difference in tolerance. So are you educating them to be a little more aggressive? <laughs> 
I, I can only do what I can do. <laughs> I guess that what, what's coordinate there as well as that, what I've appreciated is that on the adult side, there's less in the way of primary supportive care in that same way. They seem more hesitant to give transfusions in, mm. in some of those settings. And they seem also more hesitant to give some of the biologic products like the GCSF that we give. You know, for our kids, it's it's really a no-brainer if their counts are low. Okay, well, we'll give them some Neupogen. Um, but I don't see as much of that from the adult side. What's your perspective, having kind of sitting in, in both worlds now? I don't know. I haven't seen... I see pretty comfortable use of the, of the GCSF. Do you? Okay. Um, you know, one thing that I do think that there's a lot more data when you think about more of your leukemia patients mm-hmm. and, and what should we be prophylaxing with them with up front. I think in our relapse trials, because of the rates of infections... You know, they all are getting an antibiotic and an antifungal agent. Right. Um, and we're starting to bring that into our upfront setting. I think on the adult side, that has been a standard for oh, them. And, okay. you know, to, to be giving them the antifungals and the ac- antibacterials um, more upfront. And I think that it's something we should be looking hmm. at doing, especially with our AYA population where you have good agents and there's data and there's yeah. safety data. We should maybe be implementing that. But that being said, the COG is working on a couple of supportive care trials mm-hmm. that will help us to know, you know, concretely if, if that's helping or not. Yeah. You mentioned during your talk your own study. What What is your own trial that you've got running? Oh, so right now I'm a national chair for a study run through the COG um, phase one consortium looking at an antibody against TEM1, which is a protein that's expressed within the stroma of tumor cells as well as on activated pericytes. And the thought is, is that this antibody helps probably impede the collagen interactions that are involved with actually how the, the tumor itself is structured. Um, so not as much cytotoxicity but actually may have its greatest impact in terms of preventing metastasis because they just can't get sort of that anchored structure in place. And so we're, we've almost completed it. Great. We should be done soon. That's exciting. You know, I think there's way too little paid attention to the stroma and the microenvironment. And we, you know, everyone's screening drugs in culture without any of the stroma or microenvironment around. And the cells are probably behaving very differently in that environment. So it's great to hear there are some trials for that. So back to the AYA, just to wrap up, um, what, how can we improve the outcomes for AYA patients? I think we need to continue doing the good work that we've started. I think we need to continue to work on collaborating with our adult oncology colleagues to really work on having AYA programs, to expanding access to not just the academic institutions, but figure out a way to also capture and include medical oncologists who work in the community. Um, and I think that we really need to work on collaboration with our pediatric and adult developmental therapeutics or phase one programs so that we can really expand access for our patients who are over 18 um, to have the opportunity to participate in those trials. You know, unfortunately, the reality is, is there is a paucity of trials evaluating new agents for kids with cancer. And, and I think that there is safety. There's definitely safety for patients above 18. One thing that hopefully we'll be able to do is maybe drop those ages down a little bit to expand access. But by allowing patients with pediatric cancers onto adult trials um, to learn more about how those drugs may actually impact the outcomes for our pediatric malignancies. Great. Well, that would be terrific. So uh, good luck in Thanks. all your efforts to do that. If any of our listeners have more interest in this topic, we did interview Archie Blyer in episode number six, who's 
I've uh, been a longstanding uh, champion of the adolescent young adult population and probably one of the original folks to point out the fact that they're, they have disparities in, in outcomes and Absolutely. care. And also uh, touching on some of these issues are all the national or federal regulatory uh, laws and rules and, and incentives about pediatric drug development, which we discussed with Kathleen Neville on episode 36. You have anything else you want to ask or comment? No, I think it's a it's an exciting field, and yeah. and um, definitely um, you know having to um, to deal with the struggles of finding novel therapeutics for patients who are falling mm-hmm. in that in that little valley of eight, 15 to eighteen. Um, I I wish you the best of luck and and getting more access for our kids. Thanks. So thank you for being here today, Robin, and thank you, Neelay, for co-hosting. For our listeners, we're happy to read your emails during a future podcast and discuss your comments and questions. If you send us a note at twipo at solvingkidscancer.org, you can follow us at, on Twitter at Twipo Podcast, and you can also sign up for automatic notification when we post new episodes by registering using the RSS feed link on the Solving Kids Cancer website. Thanks to the team at Solving Kids Cancer, a nonprofit charity dedicated to improving survival through creating novel treatment options for children. That team includes Donna Ludwinski, our executive producer, and Jenny Song, director of communications. And also thanks to Scott Kennedy and John London, founding co-directors of Solving Kids Cancer. Remember, the more we learn, communicate, share ideas, and work together, the faster we'll reach the day when all childhood cancer is preventable or curable. As always, keep up the fight, and thanks for listening to This Week in Pediatric Oncology.